Now, one more time, back to Zephaniah. You can have your Bibles open to Zephaniah chapter 3. And as you're looking for that book, if you find Matthew, go backward four books. You're there. Small book, sometimes it's easy as you're thumbing through real fast and it only sits on two pages. You might miss it as you, as you go. Zephaniah has been describing a, a pretty serious problem among the people, even though Josiah is king and even though he's making spiritual reforms, the people are complacent. They're bowing down to God, while at the same time they're bowing down to their false gods and their idols. They are uh, pictured as worshiping God, but not following him, not seeking him. They're not inquiring of, of God. And so the prophet has come and told them that they need to gather for repentance, that judgment is ultimately coming and Judah needs to turn back before it's too late. But unfortunately, in the call to repent and to turn back before it's too late, we were told that the people were all the more eager to make their sins and make their actions even more corrupt. And God gives these chilling words that he thought surely that they would listen, uh, but they did not and did not accept correction. The big hanging question then is, so what is God going to do about that? It's one of the things that I really enjoy about going through particularly what are called the minor prophets is sometimes we can have a tendency to think of the minor prophets as just, well, God's just laying out judgment and judgment and more judgment and more judgment. And yet every single prophet always comes around and says, now here's what God is going to do about all this. And Zephaniah is no different, that we have seen over two chapters in talking about the problems of the people and the problems of the world and the sins that are being committed. And so the big question is, what is God going to do because the people have rejected him? What is God going to do with the people who are worthy of judgment? What is God going to do with the people who are eager to make their deeds all the more corrupt? And that is, that is the answer that then comes in in chapter 3. And I want you to notice in chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 9. We'll take verse 9 uh, to the end of, of the chapter. But in chapter 3, verse 9, you'll notice that he says here, So at that time, I'm going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of the dis my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. First thing he says is going to happen is the speech of the people is going to change. And you might read that and go, that seems awfully strange and perhaps even rather insignificant until you consider how would it be possible for the people to change what they're saying? How will their speech be any different? And I think at first you notice that what God is intending with this is that I'm going to change the speech of the people so that all the world will come and worship him. I hope you caught that in verse 9 that he doesn't just simply say, and I'm going to change the, the speech of the people of Judah. But he then even talks about in verse 10 from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones. There's this imagery of people beyond the borders of Judah being able to return and have this changed speech. And that would only happen with change hearts. When, when God speaks of changing the words or the lips or the mouth of, of people, there's always a picture of a spiritual reformation that is going to happen. You might remember the words of Jesus where he says, 
that it is out of the abundance of one's heart that the mouth speaks. And that's the idea here is if the speech is going to change, well, the only way that's going to happen is because the hearts are going to change. That God is going to cause a radical change of desire, which is fascinating because we have seen for two chapters that the people have no heart for God at all. They don't desire him. They desire their wicked and their evil deeds. We have read about a people who are complacent and hypocritical and arrogant. They're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to draw near to God. They don't want to change. And then here is God saying, but at that time, there is going to be a change. There will be a change of heart that is going to happen. In fact, the change of heart has an important purpose. You'll notice in verse nine that he says there that this is going to happen, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. They're all going to be able to call Upon the name of the Lord. I think it's important to see that that is the imagery of a complete reformation. This seeking after God. This desiring God. The people are going to no longer reject God. But they're going to call out to him. They're going to desire him. They're going to seek him. And notice in seeking him what they're going to be able to do. And it says that they will serve him with one accord. I like some of the other translations that... Uh, bring in a little bit more of the imagery because the, the Hebrew word there is a picture of being shoulder to shoulder. And so there's this image of I'm going to change the hearts of the people so that they will desire me. And all of the peoples are going to worship side by side, shoulder to shoulder, worshiping God together. So this is an amazing declaration after these words of judgment to say a radical change is coming where people are going to seek me and worship me. The second picture that he gives of this radical change is in verse 11, where he says on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth any deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So first picture is changed speech, which means a changed heart, a desire for God is going to happen. And the second picture he gives, he says, on that day, you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Think about that statement there. Here's all the bad things that you have done. You have rebelled against God. He just kind of owns this to them and says, you have all these evil deeds. But then he turns around and says, but you're not going to be put to shame by those things. All those things that you did to stand against me, you will not be put to shame for I'm going to remove from your midst these arrogant ones, these proudly exultant ones he pictures here. There is an image of this forgiveness that God is going to accomplish that is able to take away the guilt of the people. That you will no longer be put to shame. You will no longer be ashamed of the, of the terrible things that you have done in rebellion to God. And, and I hope that we would just think about that picture and that idea just for a moment. 
that God acknowledges our sinning and tries to express to us that God's forgiveness is so complete that we don't have to be a people who are loathing ourselves for the sins that were committed in the past. That God's forgiveness is so complete that we can put our trust in him and not be put to shame by doing that. That is, we're not going to get before God on the day of judgment and go, okay, I did all of these terrible sins, but I have put my trust in you. And God's going to go, well, that was a bad idea. You shouldn't have done that because look at all the things you've done. Now he's saying that faith, that trust, you're putting your hope in him. You won't be put to shame by doing that. Even with all those deeds that you committed, you will not be put to shame. You will stand before me. That is the imagery that's that's given here. And again, notice the transformation idea because he says there in verse 11, who is he going to remove? The arrogant, the haughty, the exultant, the proud. He's going to leave ultimately a humble people who are purged of their sins. And thus they are going to seek the Lord. Verse 12, I will leave in in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord who are left in Israel. They will not do injustice. They will not speak lies. They're not going to have a deceitful tongue. There is this image of a completely changed people. And what they are doing is they are being able to trust in God, hoping in God that God has completely forgiven them so that they are not put to shame by their rebellious deeds. In fact, the the final image of that at the end of verse 13. And they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Notice the imagery of rest. In fact, when you read that, you might have some Psalm 23 jumping into your mind right there about being able to have the Lord as your shepherd who causes you to lie down in these green pastures. Zephaniah using that imagery and saying that here is what's going to happen is they're going to be fed. They're going to rest. They will have no need for fear. God is going to care for them. And so they will have no shame as they walk before God. Now, I want us to think about those two pictures for a minute, because I think one of the things to ask ourselves is, so how is that going to happen? You have spent all of this time talking about these horribly rebellious people who do not care about God, who are hypocritical and duplicitous. And yet here you are saying that you are going to have a people who are going to have purified speech and they're going to come from all over the world and they're all going to seek you and they're all going to worship you and they're going to have these changed hearts and they're no longer going to be arrogant and they're going to lie down and have rest. And you have to read all of that and go, okay, well, what are you going to do to make that happen? What is going to take place that's suddenly going to change those things? Notice verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. I want you to see two things that are described as the answer for what is going to cause this transformation in the hearts of the people. I think the first picture is so powerful in verse 15. Here is God saying, 
I've taken away the judgments against you. Now think about that. We've, that's, this whole thing has been judgments against Judah, telling them about the judgments that are coming. And yet now God comes in and says that the sin and the evil are not going to have the final say. Judgment and wrath do not need to have the final say. God has taken away the punishments. He's taken away the judgments. How is that happening? What has happened? The end of verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. One amazing image that's given here is that when the king of Israel comes, when the Lord is in your midst, your judgments and your punishments are going to be removed. And the removal of those judgments is supposed to generate the heart change so that the people have lips of worship who come as shoulder to shoulder from all over the world, declaring the praises of God and no longer having shame, but humble and lowly coming before God. And I want us to, to one of the things that I wanted to do in this lesson is spend two hours to be quite fair and honest. But you got time right now. I know. I'll give you one one great image of that is in John 1 and verse 11. Listen to how the gospel of John frames the essence of of the work and purpose of Jesus. When Jesus comes, the, the king of Israel, the Lord in the midst of the people. Here's how John words this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is what Zephaniah is prophesied is going to happen. When the king of Israel comes, when the Lord is in your midst, judgment is removed. Grace is coming and that is supposed to change the hearts of the people and cause them to be humble and to seek him and to then be of pure speech and of pure words. Now, the thing that I want to zero in on then is how this prophecy ends, because What I want you to notice is that Zephaniah now settles in by talking about because of this knowledge, I want you to be strong. Look at verse 16. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. So, okay, the Lord is in your midst. The Lord has come. He's taken away your judgments. He's transforming the heart. And now he says, here's what I want for you. I don't want your hands to grow weak. I don't want you to tire out. I don't want you to be weary. I want you to be strong. And so I'm going to end my prophecy by telling you why you can be strong. What is going to carry you through? What is God doing? And in this, there are six pictures that are given here about what God is doing 
That is to give them strength and for their day looking forward to the Messiah and for us seeing our Messiah in our midst who has taken away our shame and our judgment. First picture, verse 17, right out of the gate, God's with you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He just starts right there. This is supposed to be a great place of strength for us. And I want you to think about how many times God uses that in the scriptures. How many times does he come to those who belong to him and he says, I want you to be strong because I'm with you. I a lot. Moses, you can be strong because I'm with you. Joshua, you can be strong because I'm with you. We spent time with Elijah. Elijah, you're going to be fine. I'm with you. Over and over again, God says, you're not alone. And that is to give you the strength that you need. I'm in your midst. I'm with you. So don't weaken. Do not let your hands hang limp. Do not grow weak. God is with you. And by knowing that we are able to go forward with God. The second image capitalizes on the same picture. Verse 17. A mighty one who will save. One of the other things that God likes to do is he likes to repeatedly picture himself as a mighty warrior. He likes to give you the image of God is your fighter. He is the one who goes to battle for you. He is the one who's going to give you success and victory. If I had those two hours, we'd read Revelation 19, where you see here is Christ pictured as a mighty warrior coming in on his white horse, victorious over his enemies. You have also Isaiah 59. I debated reading the whole chapter to you. I'm restraining myself, but let me give you half of the chapter. The buildup of Isaiah 59 is talking about how terrible the people are. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. And he doesn't hear and he just goes on and on talking about the problem of the sinning of the people that has caused this great divide. And he notes in verse 16, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no one and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory to the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. What's Isaiah say? Isaiah's looking around and saying, 
The people are a mess. And God says there's no one to intercede. True. What human can intercede for humans? We're all in the same boat. So God says, here's what I will do. I will put on my own warrior armor and I will fight for my people. This is what Zephaniah is picturing. In a very simple line here in Zephaniah, he just simply says to them, here your mighty one, your mighty warrior is coming and he is coming to save. And so what's going to happen? Don't don't give up. Don't grow weak. You do have all these things, but God is coming to rescue. God is in your midst. He is going to save. And then not only after he says that, listen to the next line in verse 17. It just, it's astounding line after astounding line verse 17 he will rejoice over you with gladness some translations say he will delight in you god is going to rejoice over you i hope that you struggle with that idea for a minute god is pictured as taking pleasure in us God is pictured as receiving joy from us, gladness because of us, rejoicing over us. And I thought about that image and thinking, here is the self-sufficient God, as we spoke about this morning, who is taking joy in us to think about how that could be. And I thought about it like this. If you think about it like parents and children, I think the image becomes easier to grasp. Because parents take great joy in the joy of their children. Uh, They just do. And you see that image then with God is that what God is saying is your salvation and your transformation causes God to rejoice over you. We even have that image in Luke 15 reminding us what's going on when one person repents. You know, God's up there going, hey. no. angels are rejoicing. There's this whole imagery of the whole spiritual realm just going nuts because people are being transformed and being saved. And that's what's being pictured here by Zephaniah. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. God is rejoicing over you. He takes pleasure in you. In fact, notice it at the end of verse 17. And it says, he will glory and exult over you with loud singing. Think about this. God is singing because of you. I have a hard time still with that. <laughs> what a picture. Here is God glorying and exulting over you with loud singing. He is rejoicing. As you go through this transformation and enjoy the salvation of God. And so the picture of strength there is that God takes delight in you. And if that were not enough, stay in verse 17. He's not done. We missed a line. Look at the middle of verse 17 again. Where it says there, he will quiet you by his love. He will quiet you by his love. Strength that we have for today is an image that God's love for you is supposed to be the place where you would find peace 
and find calm in life. It's again that image of a parent to the child where God's love is is soothing in that way, calming the child in that way. And so here is God saying, I will quiet you. I will give you peace. I will calm you with the love that I have displayed for you. Number five, verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and the renown in and renown in all the earth. Fifth picture that's given here. And it's a picture that God is constantly giving is God gathers the outcasts and gathers the broken. You might remember Jesus emphasizing that point when he's in the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll in Luke chapter four and verse 16. And he starts speaking about uh, the image that comes from Isaiah of, of coming to the lame and the broken and the, those who are captive and in the dark and bringing that salvation. And that's the image that God is always giving is trying to explain to us. I have come for the broken. I have come for the outcast. I've come for the hurting. I've come for the lame that God does not come to us, us in harshness. I'm sure this is one of the prophecies you love as much as I do. In Isaiah 42, where in speaking about the coming of the Messiah, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. How many times do we feel like that bruised reed? Or that wick that just barely has a flame going? God says, I don't come to you in harshness. I'm not going to come to you and snuff that out. You're a bruised reed. I'm not going to finish you off and break you all the way. But rather I come to gather the outcasts and gather the broken. That God doesn't come to kick us while we're down, but he comes to restore us. And we love the words of the song. The, the words of the song that we sing is bring Christ your broken life not bring Christ your perfect life this is what you have Zephaniah saying is I'm bringing in the broken I want them that's who I'm trying to restore that's who I'm trying to help in fact that restoration image comes in verse 20 as the sixth point at that time I'll bring you in at that time I will gather you together and I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. We've talked a lot about that reversal restoration imagery. And here it comes in again where God says, I'm going to flip the script. I'm going to reverse your fortunes. Here we are, complacent, sinful, rebellious, unworthy of God to look upon us in any way whatsoever. And yet he says, the Lord is going to come. He is going to be in your midst. It's supposed to change your heart, which changes your life, changes your lips. And the way to have courage going forward is in strength for today is to remember these six things that God says he's doing. I'm with you. I fight for you. I rejoice over you. I will quiet you in the time of your difficulty. I will gather you as outcasts and lame. I will not break you. I will not come in harshness. And I will restore your fortunes. And then Zephaniah goes, I'm done. That's what you need. Hope for the future. 
and the very promises of God. The strength that we need to be able to serve him in the toughest of times and in the darkest of times and in the greatest of difficulties. And we're supposed to see a God who loves us that much. What is supposed to change us from being a people who are complacent, a people who are rebellious, a people who are eager to make our deeds all the more corrupt, is to see the reversal and to see the love that God has for his people. That here he is saying, I want to help you. I want to restore you. I want to calm you. I want to rejoice over you. I want to fight for you. Let me be your God, and I will do those things for you. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is stunning to consider the words that you have in this prophecy. To consider how you make these kinds of promises to people who are in rebellion against you. Who have turned their back on you, who have done rebellious deeds. God, I thank you for the promises of forgiveness. God, thank you for offering a complete forgiveness that can take away our shame. That you will take those sins so far from us that we can have complete confidence that we would stand before you in judgment one day and all will be well. Lord, thank you for being a mighty warrior for us to intercede for us when we needed it most. For sending your son to be the king, to be in our midst so that we could have grace upon grace. Thank you for hearing our cries and listening to our pleads. And thank you for being gentle and meek and lowly for the times when we feel like we are broken and battered. We are down low. And thank you for your comfort to raise us back up. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength so that we would not grow weary, and that our hands would not grow weak, and that our arms would not hang limp but that you would lift us back up with your love and help us to see your love in our lives every day. Help us to finish the spiritual journey, God. Help us to continue to take steps forward so that we can enjoy eternity with you in one day. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. It's an invitation to all that God has promised, that God can restore your fortunes and you can belong to him and enjoy peace and rest with him if you turn away from sin and follow him as your savior and your god to follow him with all of your heart we want you to do that tonight can we help you do that in any way if so won't you let us know won't you come while we stand and while we sing